Hello, good afternoon. This is Mike, the Hermit of Lock Ear. Uh, it's been a while since I've done a podcast. Um, lately, I've been a little bit, I, I don't say confused, but just uh, going thinking about what direction to take uh, my blog and uh, podcasting in. And uh, to be honest, here's here's the dilemma that I face that I find to struggle with. I'm see if I can explain it in a nutshell. One is I feel like I have things to say. Now I may not be the only person saying these things, and I'm sure there's others. I listen to a lot of podcasts and a lot of videos, but not quote religious. Uh, I, I really listen to a lot of science stuff, uh, a little bit of philosophy, but mostly science. <clears throat> So I don't know other people out there saying any of the things I'm saying. I haven't heard it if they have been. But on the other side, uh, and someday I'll, I'll do a podcast about this, but uh, like most people, uh, I do struggle with, uh, I, get, I hate to put it in the term self-esteem, but it's more about friends. Um, I am truly a hermit. It's getting better. I go out now. I have coffee probably a couple times a week with a friend named Jerry. Um, and actually next week I'm going to leave the country, which is a little bit scary for me. I mean, my cancer has rendered me with virtually no immune system. The last time I flew to see my grandsons was last summer and came home and had three weeks of pneumonia. So I'm going to Iceland. I picked Iceland. I love the country. I've been there twice before. Uh, and it's, it's smallish as compared to other countries. Before I was diagnosed with multiple myeloma and renal failure, uh, in 2019, my wife and I were planning a trek across Greenland and we were gonna launch from Iceland. And that's when I became terribly sick. And uh, I was told at the time I'd never travel outside the area because I was doing dialysis four hours, uh, uh, four times a week. Uh, and it, you know, and I couldn't do it anyplace else. I had to do it here. So it was dark days. Um, but anyway, uh, I, for years I've been blogging, writing blogging, not podcasting. Uh, and I call what I do ramblings because it was a hodgepodge of topics. And I've also done that of late. And uh, I know some people probably get confused. Anyway, going back to what I was saying about low self-esteem and friends, sorry, I uh, got off on a tangent, is that I it's more my paranoia speaking to me that I feel like uh, people who listen to me think I'm weird. They don't understand. I, you know, I think I'm very clear. I've had some people who listen to podcasts and see my writings and say they have no clue what I'm talking about. And I'm sorry that that falls on me, I, I assume, for not being clear. But then I've only had a handful of angry emails and you know, people tell me I'm not a Christian, I'm going to hell. Uh, or I'm, I hear that I'm not very spiritual from people quite often, you know, maybe not directly. It's, it's hurtful and it's frustrating. And the reason they see me as not spiritual is because by choice, I do not conform to the American Christian culture. I try not, that's not my goal. My goal is not to conform to that culture. And it goes back to how I started this journey, uh, and I've told the story before, uh, and because I, I think who, who would listen to my podcast anyway, but uh, there's been like 500 people listen to it, and, and I don't know if those statistics are accurate or not. So I have to retell my story a little bit. I uh, grew up in the Bible Belt. I spent 18 years with a very uh, tough evangelical discipleship group, 
went on staff with them, went to the hardest place in the world to be a missionary, and that was in the Muslim world, trying to reach Muslims for Christ. That, that was my, uh, and I took my family, my kids, we sold everything we owned and gave it away. You know, that's how committed we were, because I have evangelicals now who don't know my history, saying I didn't try hard enough to be an evangelical. I didn't give it a fair chance. Are you kidding me? <laughs> I gave it a really hard chance, a fair chance. But anyway, um, it was during living in Egypt and having no American friends. All my friends were Egyptian. Uh, all of them were Muslims, except I had one Coptic Christian who was a landlord and he was a, a really a friend. But all my, all my acquaintances were Muslim and living deep within this very, very different culture than what I grew up with. And then looking at the group I was in, which were in another country, and how dysfunctional they were and how dishonest they were, pretending, oh, I love you, brother, I love you, brother, but hating each other. I think they hated each other from the things they would say to me in private. And and, and I, it's not just them, because uh, some of my old evangelical friends say I was hurt and now I'm angry and that's why I don't say positive things about evangelicalism. That is absolutely not true. Uh, it was the farceness of that whole world, and including my own farceness. I was as much of an abuser as I was abused, so I can't blame anyone for abusing me. It was the whole system. And it, <clears throat> someday I may do a podcast on it, but it comes down to one, uh, I guess I would call it psychological factor. It's where you believe a dogma that says uh, you're on this continuum of spirituality and you can do a, B, C, D, E, F, G, and you get higher and higher on this ladder of spirituality um, and you become almost perfect. Uh, we wouldn't say that, but that's what we felt in our hearts. So when that is not, you lay it up against reality and it's not true at all, um, then that's where you become very dishonest with yourself and with other people. So I had this break where I said, I'm done. I do not want to play this game anymore. And I, and I remember as clear as a bell that night, uh, early in the morning, uh, praying, said, God, if you're there, I don't know if there is a God, but if you're there, help me find you. But here's the direction I'm going to go in. I'm going to go in the pursuit of truth, not theological truth or dogmas. Uh, in the evangelical world, you first arrive at an answer, a dogma, and then you try to make all the evidence fit that answer. Uh, but that's not what I want to do anymore. I wanted to look at evidence for everything. Does God exist? Uh, is there reality? Is there ethics? Are there morals? So I went through uh, 10 years of study uh, and I would start out, I would say an atheist uh, at first, or at least agnostic, I can't remember. But I would have not even gone back to church except my wife, who grew up in more positive uh, church world than I had grown up in, uh, really wanted to go back to church and want to take our kids. So I went with her. And then after a while, when I started recovering emotionally and, and uh, philosophically, uh, I, and I, I, that's the other thing I learned, I, uh, Francis Schaeffer helped introduce me to philosophy, which I really like, because it does not have all the baggage of theology, of religion. If you sit down with someone to talk religion, all these words of, well, I, I felt the experience of being oneness with God and have that, you know, and you just get off on these tangents. But when you speak in philosophical terms, does God exist? Does God not exist? What is the essence of reality? What's metaphysics? What's ethics? And, and you, can, you can deal with the exact same issues, but in a very clean way. So people accuse me of not being spiritual because I like to speak in philosophical terms. 
But philosophical terms is just the love of, of knowledge. And if God exists, he wants us to know things. Uh, he put these things in reality for us to discover and to know. Um, anyway, that's my opinion. <laughs> what I, so I bounce around here uh, quite a bit. So I would say what I bring to the table is having this break at that time and desire to seek truth above all things else and not being conned ever again like I was um, and, and seeking honesty. And I'm talking about emotional honesty with myself, uh, psychological honesty. But on the flip side of that, and this is where I started this line of, I'm still in the introduction here, uh, where I started this line was that there's this tension that I want to speak the things about the things I've learned. I've learned a great deal of things on this journey, but at the same time, I covet friends. And being a hermit, being assigned to my house uh, by my physician's team uh, because I had a bone marrow transplant and I couldn't leave during the COVID pandemic, uh, I've lost virtually all my friends. I don't. My career ended. I lost all my friends except Jerry. There, you know, there's a few acquaintances. I have, but not friends like I had before uh, that I go out and do things with. Um, and it's no one's fault. It's just the way it happened that I covet friends. And when I say things that people are offended by, it, it makes me cringe because that's not my goal. And, and another, <laughs> this is another tangent, but when I was an evangelical, the way that we dealt with things, we dealt with dogmas. There's a list of probably a hundred dogmas you had to believe. The earth is 6,000 years old. Uh, you have to go to church on Sunday. Uh, you should have a quiet time every morning. And it goes on and on and on and on and on and on. And if anyone comes up and says, I dispute one of those tenets, one of those ideas, they become your enemy. They're not of God because they don't buy the dogmas that I buy. So where I'm at now is totally opposite of that. I have profound respect for people. I have profound respect of atheists. I, most of my podcasts I listen to are atheists. It's people in anthropology and, and uh, archaeology and uh, astrophysics. And I really respect them. I respect their desire for truth. I expect their knowledge, their hard work. Um, I, expect, I respect Buddhists. I respect Hindus. Uh, I certainly respect gays. I'm trying to think of other people groups that, uh, uh, but I, I, I definitely respect people who have very different theological views than mine. I have a hard time with postmodernism, not with the people who subscribe to it, but the, the and let me, let me uh, define it a little better, late postmodernism. Um, I got uh, called out on that from doing some postmodernism talks, anti-postmodernism talks. Including my son called me out saying I was it was a straw a straw man approach of beating up on postmodernism. So I had to redefine it. Postmodernism came into the States probably in the 1940s or 50s. You know, it starts with a hierarchy up, you know, thinkers and artists, and it works its way down to the masses. And in the beginnings, postmodernism did give our give our culture some gifts. We left modernity, which believed that science could answer all of our problems, and it cannot. Uh, my greatest, my favorite big philosophical movement of the last 2,000 years is the awakening. But the awakening also went to seed, went bad um, into modernity and scientific positivism, where you really believe that science will solve all your problems, and it can't. 
And that was that was what provoked postmodernism, which um, threw reason and science somewhat out the window um, and focus on experience. But in the very beginning, uh, they started with linguistic deconstruction and they, they started looking at um, cultural beliefs, mores, and started questioning them. And I like that. That's the same way Socrates did it, uh, is to question things. So in the 1960s, rather than saying, yes, sir, to uh, the government, I'll go fight your wars because if the government says we're in a war, we should be in a war. So the early days of postmodernism said, no, wait a minute. Why are we in this war? Is this a justified war? And you weren't really allowed to ask those questions before the 60s. Not, not, you know, a few intellectuals might, but not the common people. But you saw the war protest and the feminist, the rise of feminism. All these things were were uh, energized by post, the early days of postmodernism. And that was a good thing. But every movement ends up in the pits, and that's where postmodernism now it has been. So we're in the late stages of postmodernism. May have reached its peak, <coughs> excuse me, in 19, or not 19, 2016. That's the year Time Magazine said truth died. But today's talk is really not postmodernism, uh, not directly. And I said in my writings recently, I'm going to try to, my ramblings, I'm going to try to focus on the post, postmodernism and post, we're living in a post-Christian uh, nation, not, not nation, uh, culture, Western culture. Uh, and I want to talk about that today. And, and I've wasted, not wasted, but I spent a lot of time talking about uh, these other things that uh, I may spend, spend all my time, spent too much of my time. Uh, another tangent. <laughs> Excuse me, I take a drink. I'm very dehydrated. Uh, during those dark years when I became a hermit, uh, and I, I've mentioned this before, it was a very dark time. I felt awful from the cancer and from a bone marrow transplant. I was locked in my house, basically. My wife was working 12 hours a day. And I started having thoughts of suicide quite, quite a bit. And it's rational suicide. You know, you have no hope. Your life is going to end in a matter of months. You're suffering beyond suffering, you've lost all your friends, you've lost your career, you've lost everything. But when I turned a corner a little bit that my cancer was starting to respond to treatment finally, uh, and I knew that I may have a few years left, uh, I knew the hopes of me surviving, I would have to engage my mind in something productive. I couldn't uh, sit around here and think, just think and write, you know, blogs and that kind of stuff and and talk to my dog all day long so i wrote a book which uh, the stones of yemen which took three hard years of writing uh, that book is out please buy it <laughs> i think it's a good book i've written this is my i, I can't remember seventh or eighth book some of them are not very good <laughs> and i wouldn't encourage you to buy them i just when you are trying to be a writer you get bombarded by people trying to take advantage of you and selling you stuff and someone said hey i want to do a radio broadcast about you and your book now that would be a good thing if it was about the stones of yemen but i said how come you never mentioned the name of my book and they wrote back oh oh that's right uh it's the uh uh butterflies in the belfry and i said are you serious that book is 15 years old and it was my it was my last non-fiction book about some of the things i talk about these days with philosophy and christianity and etc and uh, that book, I had a lot of hate mail, and I just don't want to go through that again. Uh, 
Uh, religious people are not kind. I won't say that as a blanket statement, but some of the most hateful people you can find are religious people and political people. Uh, the worst I mentioned, I think, before, I got a four-page handwritten letter from a religious person down the street who told me that God had said I was going to die from my cancer and I was going to go to hell. <laughs> Why does someone not think that's hurtful? How can they <laughs> claim they, they follow Jesus, who was a messenger of love, and not see that that is hurtful to tell someone who's struggling with cancer? Anyway, I digress. But anyway, the second thing I did, I my, during my retirement, my dream was to go to Europe and restore an old stone cottage. And that's impossible now. But I decided to build one from scratch here on our property. In the Pacific Northwest, you have to build a wooden interior frame with stone cladding around it. And it's consumed me in a good way. My mind cannot turn off. I am constantly being creative thinking about this cottage. It's very, very hard work. Uh, I'm injured half the time. But in a way, I, I was about to give up my blog entirely because I just didn't have the energy after I got done with my cottage each day. But today, the heat drove me inside. I uh, Early when I started working in March, it was raining a lot here. So I got a portable greenhouse, which is it's white. It's not clear. Um, and it worked out great. But now that summer's here, it's like 110 degrees inside. Today is like 78 degrees outside, but it's, it's really hot in my workshop, which is a greenhouse. All right, so what I now that 17 minutes have passed, um, if I do a part two, I'll go right into it and not do all this rambling. I hope, I hope my rambling um, will put things in perspective a little bit. <clears throat> we are, for the first time in 2000 years, we now on the verge, we're in the midst of a post Christian culture. Now, I've brought this up many times in churches and Christian groups, and everyone turns and stares at me and gives me the evil eye as if I'm the devil. I'm the message barrier. There is no question. There is no question. Uh, Europe entered this phase probably 75 years ago, and now it's America's turn. Uh, in 2020, for the first time in our country's history, 50 Less than 50% of Americans are a member of a religious organization. That's that's profound. Uh, it was like 90% in the 40s. Um, and now even those 50%, if you visit most churches today, now, now there's exceptions. People always tell me about exceptions. If you were to visit most churches today, and I've done this, and I'll look across the room, even if it's a crowded church, it's an ocean of gray hair or bald heads. Uh, I was telling this to a friend of mine, uh, an old uh, evangelical roommate of mine, he's still an evangelical associate pastor, uh, was arguing with me that his, his denomination is the exception. Well, I looked up his denomination, and it was actually the oldest denomination in America, with the average age of 64, if I remember right, uh, or maybe it's even older. Uh, uh, and it's, uh, there's been a slow decline in Christianity, but now there's been a rapid fall off and it's due to many, many factors. If you look at the younger people, ages 18, 29, a survey done, uh, I think in 2021, I forgot if it was a Pew survey, but anyway, in 2021, um, I had a reference here somewhere in case somebody want to look it up. Uh, give me a second. I don't usually speak from notes, but I, um, I was going to write what I'm saying today 
on my blog and then it hit me again that I'm going to alienate some people if it's in writing because less people come to the podcast. Uh, anyway, I can't find the reference. It might be in Pew. But <clears throat> in the ages of 1829, uh, only 21% of those people attend. They don't, they're not members. They attend a church. Only 31% say they believe in the biblical concept of God. Uh, now, there's three ways that Christian folks re react to this. Now, my talk today is not directed at Christian folks, but what I'm trying to say is, uh, and it, this applies to atheists, Christians, Buddhists, doesn't matter, but being a post-Christian culture will bring some very positive things. And my Christian friends, the hair would stand, on, stand up on the back of their heads to hear me say that. But the way Christian people uh, deal with this is, like I said before, talking about people staring at me when I mention this, is denial. Um, they just don't believe it's true or they think somehow they can overcome that. Now, people my age in their 60s and older don't have to worry about this. There's going to be traditional churches way beyond they when they die, probably for another 100 years or who knows, maybe a 1,000 years. But it's going to be a tiny, tiny segment of society. Um, so one is denial. Now, the second one is confrontation. And this is where atheists and other non-religious people can see this playing out in our culture. Because I'm not talking about just Christian culture. I'm talking about Western culture. Is this what's going on right now with these uh, 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 culture wars that, or social wars that you hear about? Uh, you know, I think DeSantis in Florida, he's trying to appeal to evangelicals, so he's banning books and he's going after gays and lesbians and anything like that. Now, just 10 years ago or maybe 15 years ago, it was Muslims they were going after. After 9-11, uh, the evangelicals wanted to see more and more wars against Muslims. But now it's uh, the big one right now. It's going to change in the next couple of years are gays and lesbians, drag shows, that kind of thing. Is confrontation. So some of my evangelical friends, their vision, and I would call it Christian nationalism, is uh, that Christians would gain power in Washington, D.C. And, and if they can't convert people to Christianity, at least they can legislate Christian laws onto uh, uh, people. And they feel justified because they're doing this for God. And it, <laughs> it doesn't matter if Jesus himself said, his kingdom is not of this world. Uh, but the Republican Party, uh, politics is always just about power. Uh, there, there's certainly good people in politics who want good things, but it's mostly about power. And the Republican Party uh, got in bed with, with American evangelicals because they wanted their votes, and evangelicals felt cornered as this decline in Christianity was happening, um, and they wanted power. And that's where I think was the greatest travesty in the history of the church in America was 2016, when all the evangelicals got in bed with Donald Trump. These are the same evangelicals who've been focused on the family, promise rings for my daughter so she stays a virgin to the wedding day. Let's don't drink alcohol. Let's don't gamble. Let's don't tell lies. And then jump in bed with both feet with the biggest liar that <laughs> modern pop history has known, uh, money-hungering, money habitual adulterer, uh, fornicator, uh, <laughs> and they had no qualms because he offered them power. 
and they were desperate for power in this declining age of uh, Christianity. Now, the other approach uh, is compromise. This this is Christians on the that was Christians on the right. Now Christians on the left. The compromise is <laughs> sort of like the old cliche: if you can't beat them, join them. Uh, that okay, let's dampen down what Christianity says. And this this is where there's an intersection between between postmodernism and um, post-Christian uh, America. And it's a two-way street. Uh, postmodernism has helped to usher in post-Christian America. And post-Christian America embraces post-modernism, even the Christians, because it makes it more palatable. It's more palatable to say there's no truth than to say that Christianity is true. Uh, now, I, I'm comfortable in a room with an atheist who said atheism is true, and a Buddhist who says Buddhism is true, Hindu who says Hinduism is true, Muslim who says Islam is true, and a Christian says Christianity is true. That's fine with me. But if I enter a room where someone is saying Buddhism and Christianity are both true, that freaks me out. Because in classical <laughs> classical philosophy, that makes no sense. Um, Christianity teaches of a personal God. Uh, Buddhism does not. It teaches of a a spiritual force, and you can call it by different names, but not a personal God. Uh, Buddhism teaches that this world is an illusion. Christianity teaches this world is real. Uh, Buddhism meditation is to escape this world. Christian meditation is to examine this world rationally and try to make uh, better choices about how we deal with the world. But I could go on and on. So uh, when pop theologians, and I'll name them, uh, if I <laughs> uh, like Richard Rohr, I cannot stand listening to the man. I'm sorry. And I and it's no reflection on people who adore him and love him. Uh, I, those people are my friends. I love them. I don't think they're stupid. I don't think they're inferior to me. To, to me, to hear Richard Orr, it's, it's fingers on a chalkboard because he's trying to be a pop theologian by merging all these things in his compromise. And uh, uh, same with Rob Bell. Rob Bell started out with a, as a probably true evangelical. I don't know him that well. But now he speaks exactly in this pop theo, the, theology of trying to blend these opposites into one, uh, which can't be done without the total sacrifice of truth. And that sounds loving and kind. Okay, there's no truth. There's no opinions. So it's all just hug and, and be one. But then that leads, and this is why postmodernism is going to lead to a disaster. It already has since 2016. Uh, the trouble that America sees in politics is part of this problem of giving up the aspir aspiration of truth. Now, in our normal lives, every day, we, we live in truth. We walk on floors that we know hold us up. We drive cars that we know function. The engineering functions, we know some of us vaguely, some of us better. How gasoline engines work, airplanes don't fall out of the sky and hit us. Because we live in a world that we accept truth, except in these important areas of, of morality, of philosophy, of spirituality, we give up the pursuit of truth. So denial, uh, uh, confrontation, and compromise are the three ways that Christians, at least, are dealing with this post-Christian world. Now, if I, I, I think this recording will turn off in 30 minutes, so I just have two minutes left. So I'm going to make a part two. This is a long introduction, but part two, and I may even record it directly now. But uh, I want to look at uh, how the history of the Christian church 
uh, in my opinion, has been a revisionist history. And I want to go through that. Uh, and so I'm going to end this recording here and do a part two, and you can listen to it now or whenever. But that's, that's what it's going to be about. Thank you.